0: is an Odyssey Original.
1: This is Kate Death. I'm Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. Alone in America, we go in-depth about why more people than ever in the country are living by themselves.
2: We we'll also go in-depth on what's causing that uh,
1: hillside
2: to collapse in Rolling Hills Estates and if others along the coast are in danger too. Also, a Harvard professor says he might have proof that we are not alone
1: in the universe. We start with living alone, apparently not a problem in the universe, but a problem here on Earth, at least in the U.S. Bella Dipolo is a social psychologist and author of the upcoming book, Single at Heart. Bella, thanks for being with us.
3: Thanks for having me. So talk to
1: us about what appears to be a trend, or, or is it?
3: It is a trend, and it has been increasing steadily for decades. and. You described it as a problem. I describe it as a dream come true. For many people, they love living alone. It's uh, a way to be able to have time to yourself, have space to yourself, create the life that you want. You can um, get to decide how to use your space, how to use your time, um, what you eat when you go to sleep. All of that. And I think that our obsession with loneliness, which is a problem and needs to be taken seriously, but it overlooks the flip side of that, which is the joys of having time to yourself. Many people, including the people I call single at heart, love being single. They savor their solitude, they're not afraid of being lonely. They like that the time they have to themselves lets them be more creative, more reflective, um, and just relax.
2: But why is this happening now? Why is this trend developing now uh, as opposed to in the past? Because I think the, the number of households in the country that were not single households has really skyrocketed in the last few years.
3: Yes, and in fact, if you were to travel around the nation... And at random knock on doors of households, you would be more likely to be met by a single person living alone than a household of mom, dad, and the kids, which is a dramatic reversal from say the 1950s or even before then. So people live alone if they have the interest and the resources. So as people have more um Economic possibilities, they'll live alone if they can afford to. They live alone if they want to. And people can, women especially, are more likely to be able to afford to if they have jobs of their own, jobs that pay enough. And that has been increasing. Another thing that makes it easier to live alone is the communications revolution that we can be sitting at home and have, you know, the the web, the email, uh, texting, we can be in touch with anyone practically anywhere in the world. So the idea of somebody sitting alone isolated and cut off from the rest of the world that's rarely true
1: and yet and, but and yet, there have been numerous polls of late that shows that a lot of Americans are lonely, so why is that happening at the same time?
3: Yes. Right. Well, I think the key is choice. Do you want to live alone? So, for example, um, if you got married very young and then stayed married and and then when you're on your own, let's say after divorce or being widowed, that's new to you. And so you're not used to organizing your own social life. So that can be difficult. Um, One of the things that this that has been pointed out is that living alone can be more difficult for older men than for older women. And I think part of that is women are more are better at creating friendships and ties with other people and maintaining those ties. But another thing is that um, When men don't have any experience living alone, it's harder. And now, as the age at which people get married gets older and older, now about um, half of men who marry for the first time are over the age of 30. That means they have spent all those years of their young adult life Unmarried mm-hmm. and maybe living alone, so now they know what it's like to live alone too, for themselves so and to
2: order pizza or whenever you want.
3: Household and create their own okay. social lives. So then, if they get married and then divorced or widowed, I think the future looks brighter for them because they now know how to do single life, how to
2: Well, All right. Uh, Thank you so much, uh, Bella
1: DiPaolo, social psychologist, author of an upcoming book called Single at Heart. Yeah, well, right now, though, Russia says that President Vladimir Putin met with Wagner chief uh, Przogin just days after Przogin's revolt uh, when he marched his private troops toward Moscow. David Marples is a uh, Russian and European history and politics professor and expert with the University of Alberta. David, thanks for being with us. My pleasure. So uh, I guess the initial thinking was that uh, Brugosian was in uh, uh, what do you call it again? In, in, in nearby, now I've had a loss at thinking of the nearby country. Belarus. 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 Yeah. That's it. Thank you. I was trying yeah. to, to think yeah. of that. Uh, that he had gone to Belarus. And then it turns out that he surfaced instead uh, in Russia. And then it subsequently turned out that he met with Vladimir Putin. So what do people who watch these sort of things think?
4: Well, uh, first of all, not only Prigozhin met with Putin, uh, 35 members of the Wagner group, including the leaders of all the various units, uh, were gathered in the Kremlin. So it was quite an official occasion. And they spent three hours uh, talking. So clearly something that was was quite in-depth. It was not just a fleeting meeting saying, you know, are you traitors? Do you still respect me? Um, it was something a little bit more, and they pledged their allegiance to Putin in that meeting and said that the the uprising had never been directed against him. It had been directed against the leader of the army and the minister of defense. Um, I don't know whether that really uh, means that they should be set free. Um, and I noticed that the parliament, uh, the Duma, has had a big discussion about it as well. And it's really mixed impressions. I mean, one one MP stood up and said that they should have a bullet. The leaders should get a bullet and commit suicide. Uh, another said that they had a perfect right to do this. They were dissatisfied and that these private military companies were very important to the war effort. You know, But the fact is that these companies were going to become part of the regular army on July the 1st, a week, a week later uh, after this happened. And so it just seemed to be a move to preempt that rather than try to get rid of Putin.
1: And speaking
2: of which, you know, Putin has to maintain this uh, aura of invincibility. And this rebellion for whatever, whoever it was aimed at, uh, did puncture that a bit. So what does Putin get out of the fact that he met with these people uh, at this point? Where, Where does Putin gain in this part of the game? Well, probably he
4: wanted to ensure that the movement was not directed against himself in any form. And that these people were going to be loyal to him in future, because I mean, there's a it's a big, important uh, unit which has achieved a lot of military success in different parts of the world, and some in Ukraine. I mean, perhaps not um, really emphatically, but nevertheless, at the Bakhmut battle, they they did succeed ultimately. Um, but nonetheless, the fact that he did this uh, tends to make him look weaker. I mean, he, he no longer looks fallible in terms of decision making. He seems to be more and more distant from the main battleground and therefore more and more ineffective and detached from what is happening in Ukraine. And I think this all illustrates that. And there are groups now on the far right, um, much of Russia's on the far right to begin with, but these are even further to the right, that are calling for the removal of Putin and saying that he's no longer effectively in
1: control. Doesn't he look... uh... Mostly weak because one of the initial reasons, right, for his going into Ukraine was his concern that the West, in his view, was encroaching on on Russian territory, in effect. And yet, uh, you know, Finland has now joined NATO today. Uh, Turkey has indicated that it will, uh, you know, not oppose uh, the uh, inclusion of Sweden into NATO. So in that sense, isn't that Alone enough to make him look incredibly weak. Yeah, I mean I think on two fronts really Putin has, has failed. I mean, first of all,
4: he's not he's not removed the government in Kiev, which he was supposed to do within about four days after the war started. That was a complete disaster. And subsequently, as you say, NATO has, has enlarged even more, mainly because these countries are frightened of Russian intrusions. It's not because NATO has a desire, particularly to expand or enlarge itself further. It's more that these countries are concerned about the uncertainty of having borders with Russia in the case of of Finland. And, you know, Sweden has been traditionally neutral for a long time and suddenly decides it's going to go the same way. So these countries are really not ganging up so much on Russia, but more protecting themselves from potential intrusions. And I think it does make it seem really farcical that the reasons for going into Ukraine, the official ones, were NATO enlargement or neo-Nazis in Ukraine and wanted to demilitarize Ukraine. I mean, there are far more neo-Nazis in Russia than, than there have ever been in Ukraine, and it's beginning to look a little bit
2: farcical now. All right. David Marples, a Russian and European history and politics professor, an expert with the University of Alberta.
1: So what if we told you that there's proof of alien technology? Mm. Well, one professor at a Ivy League school at that thinks that he has it.
2: Okay. Uh, Right now, though, 12 homes being destroyed in Rolling Hills estates by a collapsing hillside. Now, uh, the people are safe, but the homes uh, on uh, Pear Tree Lane, not so much. It shows just how dangerous living in the hills on the coast can be. Nate Onerdonk is a professor in the Department of Geological Sciences at Cal State Long Beach. Thanks for joining us.
1: We should point out that, uh, you know, we're talking, of course, about Rolling Hills, which is in the news now in the city of rolling hills estates uh in a written statement tells us that the homes there were built in the area of pier tree lane <clears throat> that was back in the 1970s and that there have been no problems associated with that particular hillside reported to the city in some 45 years
2: and uh i understand it is back with us so you heard the uh, statement there from rolling hills uh, Estates: no problems in 45 years why are there problems now
5: I mean, that's that's pretty much impossible to say without being out there myself. But, um, you know, the one obvious reason might be just the large amount of rain that we got this year. You know, we've seen landslides in many places that you haven't seen them before or haven't seen them recently because of the extra water that's been added to the slopes and to the rocks.
1: Is this sort of thing, though, predictable? Uh, and I imagine if it were predictable, people would have predicted it. But But is it easily or should it be easily predictable?
5: Uh, no, you can't predict exactly when a landslide will occur, but you definitely can make inferences about how susceptible certain areas are and how that changes over the years with different rock um, changes or addition of water to the, uh, to the system or you know, erosion along the coast. So you can't predict exactly when one can happen, but you can definitely assess the hazards at each location. So locations
2: will be different. Uh, It might look the same to me or Charles uh, because we're not experts like you are, but there are some homes on the hillsides there that would be okay and others would not be okay. What what makes the major difference?
5: So really the, the three things that are controlling the susceptibility of landslides is the rock type, how steep the slopes are, and the water within the the soil or the rock. And so if any of those things change, you know, you got a change of the forces involved and you can trigger landslides. And so in this case, these are pretty weak rocks. I mean, we've seen big landslides all over parts of Palos Verdes. Um, And then it looked like, uh, you know, from the, the maps, I can see there's a steep canyon right behind the street. So you have a high slope or a steep slope and you have weak rocks. And then, you know, who knows what the water content is, I can't do that remotely, but that would be the third aspect to look at.
1: So there are plenty of people in Southern California who live on hillsides near the ocean. Is there an easy way for them, if they're concerned, to find out what the risk is for them?
5: Um, I wouldn't say it's easy for the general public. I mean, there are uh, publicly available geology maps, but without some sort of knowledge of how to look at those, it can be sort of difficult for the average um, person to, to figure that out. But I mean, I think at a very basic level, just how steep the slope is, that's what I would look at. And then what does the rock look like? Does it look like it's crumbly or, or layers that are sort of tilted towards the, the ocean, towards the cliff? Um, those two things I think you can look at without any real geologic knowledge and make an inference of just how stable the slope might be.
2: You know, when I first moved to uh, Southern California, I was kind of amazed at how many homes I saw uh, that had been built, uh, not necessarily on uh, hillsides near the coast, but just on hillsides in general, up in the mountains. And I'm thinking of a a friend of mine had a home. uh, Most of it was situated on stilts. (laughs) <laughs> on this side of a mountain uh, heading down into a very deep steep valley and w- why do people want to build like that when it just on the surface looks like you know what an earthquake or a hillside and you're going to be in trouble
5: yeah i feel the same way i'm i'm always shocked driving around la that that people have built on these you know steep slopes and stilts exactly like you say i think You know, I don't know the exact reasons. I would guess that it's just real estate prices or the view or something like that, you know, trying to maximize every square inch that you can. Um, But, yeah, presumably somebody evaluated that that slope at some point and said, this is solid rock and this is good. And you're certainly hoping that they did that. (laughs) Um, But it still looks like a risky situation in many cases.
2: Yeah, it does. I do see some homes that make me think that someone said, what could possibly go wrong? And uh, then something goes wrong. We're going to thank our uh, guest there for that segment. That's Nate Onderdonk, a professor in the Department of Geological Sciences at Cal State Long Beach.
1: You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. President Biden is in Europe.
2: The president stopped by the U.K. earlier today and met with King Charles to talk about climate change. Next, it's on to a big NATO summit in Lithuania.
1: Mark Sandalo is a political analyst with the University of California Center in Washington, D.C. Mark, thanks for being with us.
6: Good afternoon,
1: guys. We mentioned a little bit earlier in the show when we were talking about uh, Putin and some of the goings on in the Kremlin over the past couple of days that um, I guess there was a bit of a uh, a victory for President Biden, who had been pressuring uh, Turkey to give its assent to have uh, Sweden admitted into NATO. And apparently he succeeded in getting that. Is that a big win for him?
6: It's a big deal. I mean, in some ways, it's hard to see why Sweden, of all places, you know, as a 32nd NATO country would matter. Uh, but you know, Sweden's been used to be a huge military power. Uh, you know, they were famously, you know, neutral during World War II, which you know, some people in retrospect think was a bit of an outrage, but they've always had the stance of neutrality. Joining NATO. Puts them squarely on the side of the West. And, you know, the, 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 the geography, it, it's pretty close. I mean, Stockholm to St. Petersburg is, you know, roughly, you know, it's roughly San Diego to San Francisco. I mean, it's not that far away. So to have Sweden as a member has um, got to make Putin feel that much more closed in.
2: I'm looking at a map inside my head, so it may not be completely accurate. <laughs> but Lithuania is uh, more or less a, a bit closer to uh, what's going on in, in Belarus and Russia and Ukraine than might make some people comfortable. Is there a danger in Lithuania to, to have all these uh, uh, world leaders uh, gathering there?
6: Presumably, they have you know they they have figured that out because I mean it's a good question because obviously it would not be difficult for Russia to reach you know Lithuania with missiles that you know that would be world war 3 And I don't think anyone expects that's going to happen. I mean, I think instead we're talking about much more in the way of uh, low-level, not uh, low-level, under-the-table diplomacy. It's one thing to have Sweden join NATO. The big discussion this week, and it's a huge accomplishment, and you're right, just happened today now that uh, Turkey says they will let it happen. The big issue now is when can Ukraine join NATO? They can't join immediately. NATO, I mean, the big deal about NATO is what they call Article 5. That means you attack one of us, you attack all of us. So that if NATO, if Ukraine were a member of NATO and Russia had attacked Ukraine, we'd be at war with Russia right now. We'd be in World War III because we'd have 31 countries who would be fighting against Russia at this moment. And while you can't join NATO in the middle of a war, so no one's talking about Ukraine joining immediately. I think that Biden and the U.S. have wanted to slow that down, knowing that even once this war is over, Russia may always have their eyes set on Ukraine and there's an awful lot of Americans who don't like the idea of anytime Russia bothers Ukraine, we have to consider it our business. So
1: I, my question now is a domestic political one about the presidential election that is pretty much about to get into high gear in the next few months. Does this trip uh, and even the success, as we mentioned earlier of uh, uh, you know, President Biden getting or, or persuading anyway, Turkey to to assent to uh, uh, Sweden being a part of NATO. Does that at the end of the day matter to voters? Do voters look at this and go, ah, you see, uh, Mr. Biden is really a strong leader after all. Uh, and he's the kind of guy that we want uh, another four years in the White House. Or does this go over most people's heads and they they vote simply because they're either paying more or less for gas?
6: trouble with being president it goes over it's sort of like being the i.t guy no one notices the, the 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 i.t guys aren't doing their job until the computers go down and then they scream what the hell is wrong with you guys and in some ways, that's what Biden's issue is with. I mean, he has done by a lot of observers. He, he has kept NATO together. He has kept NATO um, you know, unified behind Ukraine. The, the, the NATO issues, I remember when Trump was president, it was always NATO hasn't paid their bills. Uh, maybe we ought to drop out of NATO. Maybe we shouldn't enforce Article 5 if we get involved in war. In some ways, I don't know if Biden gets any credit, but he certainly gets blame if anything goes wrong. And so this is sort of the minimum he has to do is not blow it. I mean, this is his powerhouse. You know, he met today with the prime minister of uh, of Great Britain or the United Kingdom. Uh, th- th- this guy, uh, 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 Sunak, when Sanak was born, Biden was already almost in his third term in the U.S. Senate. I mean, Biden is an old veteran of this thing. King Charles is much closer to Biden's age, but he's still a decade younger, I believe. Uh, so, so so, so, to answer your question, Biden cannot screw this up. Uh, I don't know if it gains anything by having it go smoothly. He certainly loses things if things fall apart.
2: All right. Mark Sandelow, political analyst for the University of California Center in Washington, D.C.
1: You know, I was saying before the break that I was looking around to see if there's anything in the studio that would indicate to somebody, say, on another yeah. planet, that there was intelligent life on Earth. And right. I couldn't really find anything. I, I thought maybe the uh, – jelly, jelly beans. Jelly right? But I actually did come across uh, the container of milk-dark chocolate-covered almonds. Oh, well. And that would be proof. That's right there. That's an intelligent <laughs> civilization worthy of being saved. But, you know, the major philosophical question of are we alone in the universe might be answered with a definitive – No, we're not alone. Harvard astronomy professor Avi
2: Loeb says he may have found fragments of alien technology from a meteor that landed back in 2014 in Papua New Guinea. Professor Loeb on with us now. He's got a new book coming out uh, late next month called Interstellar, the search for extraterrestrial life and our future in the stars. Uh, Thanks so much for joining us.
0: Yes, I am. Okay. Good to to be with you.
2: Okay. So uh, I'm sure you know, uh, you're smart enough to know, uh, probably smarter than Charles and I put together, that there is a distinction to be made between uh, saying something as U.S. Space Command did, that uh, this is material that almost definitely came from another solar system, and also saying that it is alien technology. Why do you make that distinction, and why do you go so far as to say this could potentially be alien technology and not something natural that comes from another solar system?
0: Well, I did not say that. Some reporters, That distorted my words say that Um, so uh, here is what I say Uh, this is an object that uh, came from outside the solar system uh, that therefore it's called interstellar the first recognized interstellar meteor based on the US government data and uh, we made this uh, discovery with my student Amir Siraj back in Uh, 2019, and then the government confirmed it at the 99.999% confidence. So that's... uh, And then um, the government also released data about the fireball of this uh, object, and uh, it implied that uh, the object is tougher than all space rocks previously reported by NASA, 272 of them in the catalog.
1: We're having great difficulty with... um... Yeah, maybe we uh,
2: if we get our producer to reconnect with the uh, professor, and we'll talk to him now. So he's uh, uh, what I'm gathering now is this: whatever this material is that came to us from another solar system was harder than anything else we've ever encountered before. And uh, yeah, but I do.
1: But what I'm interested in, in finding out is he's saying that uh, a lot of the news headlines, right. We're not accurately reflecting what he thinks. So I am kind of curious what exactly he thinks.
2: We need to get a clarification on that. And uh, I think we may be uh, close to success in getting him back on the line here. I'm looking at the blinking lights, which would signal to me uh, some kind of artificial intelligence at work. (laughs) <laughs> uh, outside in the uh, in the production studio. As we wait for him to come back, though, uh, once again, let me talk about his new book coming out, Interstellar, The Search for Extraterrestrial Life and Our Future in the Stars. Of course, uh, Charles, uh, you and I both have talked about this quite a bit before. We're sure that there might be intelligent life elsewhere in the universe, but has it visited here? That's the real question. I think we have uh, Professor Lowe back on the line with us. Hello, sir.
0: Hi. So let me complete the picture. So this object was moving faster than 95% of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun, based on its speed, the speed that it impacted the Earth. And moreover, it was tougher than all uh, space rocks in the NASA catalog of meteors over the past decade. So based on those two properties, uh, you you might uh, uh, consider the possibility that it was technological in origin, because that would explain the excess propulsion that it has, and also potentially that it's made of some alloy. Now, to find this out, we went to the Pacific Ocean to collect any leftovers from the explosion, from the fireball of this meteor. Very simple. Collect the material and check it, whether it is natural in origin or technological in origin. And Amazingly enough, we found some spheroes, some tiny millimeter-sized droplets that uh, melted off the surface of the object when the the Fireball uh, took place and uh, we are now studying their composition to be able to differentiate between this object and any meteors that belong to the solar system and also to figure out if it's made of uh, a technological composition.
1: So I, so as we can be clear, because uh, you said at the outset that you thought that uh, reporters kind of distorted or got what you had to say uh, wrong. Uh, What I think you're saying, and correct me if if, uh, we have it wrong, what I think you're saying is that this this particular uh, object, objects, um, raise in your mind enough suspicion that uh, it's worth investigating the possibility that we could be looking at fragments of some alien technology, but we don't know until we do a lot more extensive research. Is that about it? No. No, okay.
0: This is, let me explain again. This is the first object from outside the solar system that was identified as such, the very first. Right. Okay. Now, it was an outlier in terms of material strength relative to solar system rocks. It was tougher than even iron meteorites, and it also moved faster then got all that. I, of the I, I the got videos. all that. But, 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 and, but, and the next phase, right, out of collecting the material, yeah. is to study the composition of the material, so that we can tell what it was made of. That's the next step. Okay, so and you don't, that's what so, we are doing right now. Okay,
1: so you have not, as of yet, formed an opinion one way or the other.
0: No, we are now. We just retrieved the material last week. We had no. I mean, we did some uh, studies on the ship that indicated that these uh, these these tiny particles that we retrieved, are made mostly of iron. We collected them with uh, a magnetic sled, uh, but now we are actually studying their structure, their um, the the interior structure of these uh, metallic marbles, and also. Studying the composition in terms of radioactive elements that allow us to infer the age of the material and conclusively Say whether it's outside It was made outside of the solar system or not and also whether it's of technological origin because think of uh, a melted fragments from Semiconductors mm-hmm. they would have rare elements that uh, are not found at that, those high levels in natural environments so um, that's what we are trying to figure out, and of course, the other thing that we know is the location. If there was any big piece of this object that uh, was left uh, from the impact on the ocean floor, we know where to search for it. Right. So, the next expedition will be to find a big piece because that can easily tell us if it's a rock. Or a technological gadget.
2: All right. Thank you. Uh, That is Professor Avi Loeb says you may have found fragments of something they are still investigating to see if there's the possibility that it might be alien technology. And Charles, once again, let me just point out that I, for one, Mm. would like to welcome our new alien overlords.
1: (laughs) Why do you have a feeling if they do find a large chunk of what they're looking for, it's going to say made in Japan or something (laughs) like that? (laughs) Made in China.
2: It's an iPhone.
1: Uh, That's going to do it for KDX
2: In Depth today. We'll be back tomorrow at 1 p.m.